Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. Father, thank you that you are here with us by your spirit. Thank you that we get to be family. And thank you that right now, uh, meeting a whole bunch of my brothers and sisters, thank you that we are connected by you and what you have done. And we celebrate King Jesus in this place, the one who has reconciled us to you and to one another. Uh, We just take a moment and think about what you did in your restoration between the Jews and the Gentiles. You made the two one. You abolished the dividing wall of hostility. You are the ultimate reconciler, and we need that in this world today. Uh, We need that in our church. Uh, We need that here in Australia. We're seeing plenty of evidence of needing it over in the U.S. and in so many different uh, ways it's expressed around this world. We declare that amazing reconciliation with you and with one another. Would you have your way? Would you just bring us deeper and deeper into this? Oh, Lord, have your way in this place. May we know that. And may we respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, hallelujah and amen. Responding accordingly, that's an interesting one, isn't it? There's uh, the old version of the NIV, the 1984. uh, There's a, I think that was one of your favorites, wasn't it? You memorized a lot from from that one. Um, Paul says to the Philippians, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Need some unpacking because it's slightly strange language, but basically let us live out what we know to be true. And it's been said many times before that we are educated beyond our obedience as Christians. We know a lot of stuff that we don't actually implement. Uh, and my hope for myself and for each one of us is that we are so much better at putting into practice the things that we know are true. Um, and I think a big part of my role here today is simply to remind you of things that you already know. Uh, there is this ministry of reminding. Uh, we read about it in Second Peter chapter 1. Um, I remind you of these things so that when I'm gone, you'll still be able to remember them. Uh, this ability for us to encourage one another. Um, and whether you're hearing something for the first time or hearing it for the 10,000th time, I pray that you would receive it and I pray that you would put it into practice. So my first question for you this morning is, who likes being in charge. (laughs) The man with the mic asks who likes being in charge. Who doesn't like being in charge? Who doesn't like raising their hand in church? Turn to the person next to you and say, sometimes it's good to not be in charge. Chad refuses to say it. He refused to say it in the first service in this one here. No reason to say it. I had an experience of not being in charge and the year was 1998 I was working at an establishment called McDonald's anyone ever work at Maccas we have no fellow Maccas former employees I was very lucky to survive my fourth shift and continue in my employment at McDonald's see I had a little more freedom in my fourth shift than I had in my first three and I was asked to do something I had not done before which was to go and get the tomatoes so we had tomatoes on the bench, we were running low, and so someone said, oh, can you get the tomatoes? I was like, where are the tomatoes? It's like, over there. 
It was pretty vague instruction, so I went over there, um, had a look, couldn't see the tomatoes, like, maybe they're in this funky-looking fridge. I guess I'll just open it and find out, and psh, wasn't the noise I was expecting to hear when I opened the fridge, um, and at the same moment that there was the psh, my peripheral vision noticed some powder that was falling down from the range hood into the fry vat, and then... Not too long after that, as I observed this phenomenon, I noticed a substance that was kind of bubbling up. It was kind of foam. There seemed to be a reaction between the oil in the fry vat and the powdery substance that was dropped down, aka the fire retardant that I had just released in trying to open this fridge. No tomatoes. Are we sure there's no tomatoes in here? Over $2,000 in order to get that set up happening again. Over two grand that I cost as well as the $4.50 I was earning per hour, whatever it was back then. Um, but there was a significant issue. We could not serve any fries for some time. We almost had to close the store, and it bubbled out for quite some time. Um, I remember my manager, amongst others there, trying to clean it up and me offering to help, um, and her just giving me three words. Just go home. <laughs> I got an early minute. There you go. I caused her a lot of work. Sometimes it is good to not be in charge. I had an experience about nine years after that where in my mid-twenties, after three years of teaching, I found myself as the acting principal of my school. We had chaos. Our principal had been fired. Uh, we found out they had cancer about the same time. We were leaking enrolments. Um, and I got to lead this school. Uh, somehow we got there to the end of the year and someone was brought in for an interim role the following year and I remember her stepping into the admin building on the last school day of the year um, and in a pre-COVID world I shook her hand and the most incredible sense of relief, this burden that had been on my shoulders was gone, it was lifted, amen it was. I tell you what, sometimes it's good to not be in charge. For me that year, the school holiday feels were just a whole different level. I was not in charge and I was absolutely delighted about it. And there are many reasons that it can be good to not be in charge. And there are some of those that are quite selfish, really. There's certainly other ones that are a maturity uh, factor. Whereas there are some things that you and I were never, ever intended to be in charge of. And one of those is our own lives. The scriptures tell us that you were bought at a price. The line before that is you are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. And that's good news. It may not tickle our fancy, it may not work with our 21st century Western sensibilities, but it is good news that you are not your own. You were bought at a price. I remember a friend of mine, as we were sitting down to lunch at Marion back in the day, and excused himself. He said, I need to go. I've sold the next few hours of my life to my boss. Ooh, that's an interesting way to describe a shift. Right there, I've sold the next few hours of my life to my boss. But I think it hits home, doesn't it? For us, we are not our own. We have been bought 
with a price. And it's good news because of who's bought us. It's good news because of his intention for us. And it's good news because of the price that was paid. It was a huge price that was paid for you. Who could tell me, speaking of good news, a good Christian word that means good news? Gospel. There it is. That was quick. So the gospel was a Greek word from euangelion, the Greek word. So the New Testament was written in Greek, and this Greek word was in the vocabulary before the New Testament was written, as you'd expect, words that were borrowed from the society in order to convey a new message. And this was a military term. So the gospel was about a military victory. So say Alexander the Great wins another victory, and then heralds would go throughout the land proclaiming the gospel. Alexander won again. We've got more stuff. We've got more land. We've got more people. And so when the New Testament writers used that about Jesus, they narrowed the focus a little bit, and it was really the proclamation of a new king. There's a new king, and his name is Jesus. Tim Keller's famous for saying, the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. And so if you picture, going back to that scenario of Alexander the Great, he wins a victory, heralds go out, proclaiming the gospel. They're not telling everyone on their farms and in their villages and in their shop fronts, here's a few things that you should do different with your lives. They're saying, here is an actual historical fact that completely changes everything. And so for us, as we consider the gospel, it's not, here's some good advice of things that you need to start doing differently. But rather, it is good news, a historical fact that took place in the person of Jesus Christ that has massive implications for you personally, for us collectively, and for everyone globally. We have good news. And his name is Jesus. And he's the king. And if Jesus is the king, part of the good news of Jesus being king is it means that nobody else is. It includes you as not being king. But it also includes anyone that wants to make your life difficult. They're not king. Anyone that wants you to feel like you are insignificant and worth nothing is not king. Coronavirus is not king. Cancer is not king. There can only be one. Jesus tells us you can only serve one master. You can't love both God and money. You'll hate one and love the other. We can only have one king, and his name is Jesus. And part of him being king is that we don't just express things with our words, we actually back it up with our lives. We don't just accept the things that we like that Jesus said, we receive all of it. Even that word accept, as I spoke it out, I went, oh, that's not quite right. If he is our king, it's not up to us to decide what we accept and what we reject. If he is our king, we receive all of him. Everything that he says. Not just in the Gospels, but also in Revelation. You know? Whatever it is for us that's easy for us to receive, yes, it means that. But the things that are challenging, it means that as well, because he is king. He's not the great suggester. He is the king. And it is good news because of who he is. 
It's good news because of what he has done, and it's good news because of what it means for us. So we're going to have a look at an illustration that I've borrowed from somebody else without any permission. Uh, a guy called Bruxy Cavey, who's a pastor over in Canada, um, and he calls it the Gospel in Chairs. It really is an account of one part of the Gospel. Um, it, it shows a bit of the plan for salvation across time. And I'm going to do it twice. Um, he actually does it twice. This guy, Bruxy, does it twice. Um, and there's something about the first one that doesn't quite fit, I don't believe. It is how I understood the gospel for a long time, uh, but it doesn't quite fit. And so we're going to then do it a second time through, and we're going to correct the thing that doesn't quite fit. So um, go with me on this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created people in his image with the express desire that we would live in a face-to-face relationship of love with him. But God's pretty clear, and he knows that love necessitates choice. And so he gave us the real and actual ability to choose to follow him and to receive that love or to go our own way. And we decided very early on that we would go our own way. And in so doing, we turned our backs upon the loving Father who created us. And our loving Father is a loving Father, but he's also a righteous, holy, and wrathful judge. And he was left with no choice. When we turned our back on him, he was left with no choice but to turn his back on us. However, he is that loving Father that I've already said he is. And he would not leave us in this predicament without hope. And so he sent Jesus, who I'm going to play just now, just for you, so you're aware, Jesus comes and lives a perfect human life. And then he dies as our substitute. He dies in our place. And he takes upon himself the sin of the world. He takes upon himself the judgment of God, the wrath of God, and deals with it completely to the uttermost. So there is no debt remaining, so much so that this relationship is restored, the heart of the Father is restored. And we have the capacity to choose him once again. We are empowered to choose him and to live as we have always been intended. And that, my friends, is good news. So that's the gospel, round one. Round one. I could see some of you were like, all right, what's the bit? <laughs> he told me there's a bit that I probably shouldn't agree with. I'm not sure. Maybe it's the up, uh, up. Uh. It was interesting watching your eyes. You're not really Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all together now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created in his image with the desire that we would live in a face-to-face relationship of love with him. But right at the beginning, Adam and Eve decided on behalf of all humanity to take the choice they were given by God and to turn their backs and rebel against him. It was at this point that God, because of who he is, was left with no choice. So he responded 
by pursuing them. He pursued Adam and Eve in the garden. It was they that hid. It was God who came and sought them out. Even Cain, after he'd murdered his brother, after being warned by God not to, it was God that came to him and said, I'll put a mark on you to protect you. We see it throughout history. God is the ultimate pursuer. We are the ones who turn our backs. He never turns his back on us. When we turned our back, as the nation of Israel turned their back on him, he gave them laws and said, I'll reveal myself to you. I will show you what it means to be holy, what it means to live in community with others. And we said, I'll take the golden calf. He sent us prophets to show us his heart once again and to give us the warnings, to show us the blessings and the curses. And again, we said no. And then you continue through the history of Israel and he sends them into exile. Sends them away, punishing them, but also making them thirsty for him by showing them what it's like to live under someone else's rule. But again, we said no. He has always had the same disposition toward us. That has never changed. It is us that have turned our backs upon him. So just like he sent the prophets, he sent his son. He sent his son who lived his perfect human life. Some would say even was a bit freaky. Utterly different. This is someone who not only told people to love their enemies, but actually did it. Here is someone who welcomed everyone who considered themselves beyond God's love and God's family. He challenged the religious authorities significantly. But we see his graciousness and his gentleness over and over again. We see it with the woman at the well. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to reveal myself to you. We see it with Zacchaeus, where this rejected one gets to have lunch with Jesus. And Jesus is the one who calls him out. We see it with the woman who was caught in adultery. We see how Jesus shields her and protects her from these people that wanted to kill her. And then says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We see transformation in Zacchaeus. The one who would steal and take becomes a generous giver. And we see Jesus challenge this woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. Live a different life. I don't condemn you. Now go and be free and live as I've actually created you to live. We see it in the father of the prodigal son. We see it in this amazingly generous father who sees his son off in the distance and he's like, that's my boy. That boy knows how to receive. Last time I saw him, he was taking half of everything I had. He knows how to receive. What am I going to do? I'm going to give him more stuff. It doesn't make sense to us. 
But we have this incredibly generous Father and we see him perfectly revealed in Jesus. Wow. The Son reveals the Father. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only God who sits at the Father's right-hand side, has made him known. Come on. It's Jesus that reveals the Father to us. We actually find out what God is like as we look at Jesus. And so it is Jesus who undoes what was done by the first humans. Might be familiar with the concept of the last Adam. So the first Adam, he was the one that turned the chair. But then we have the second Adam or the last Adam in Jesus. It is him as a human being who turns the chair back and so that we are in face-to-face relationship with the Father. And he does that through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He takes upon himself the sin of the world and the wrath of God. Judgment is dealt with and paid for in Jesus and we are restored to the relationship of love that we're intended to live in. And that is good news. And that is most of the gospel round two. Most of it. I want to read a bit of scripture with you before we continue to the, the last little bit. So this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and starting at verse 14. This is hitting up on the reality of Jesus being king. For the love of Christ compels us. We are motivated. If you're reading the ESV, it would say controls us. The love of Christ controls us. As our king, he actually dictates what we do. The love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. So Jesus' death for us was beneficial, as though we had actually died. Romans 6 tells us that one who has died is freed from sin. We have been freed from sin by the sacrifice of Jesus. And that is really, really good news. We see the reality over and over again that we can't actually be in charge of our own life. (laughs) Either it's Jesus who's the king of our own life or it's sin. It's Satan that rules and reigns over us. Eugene Peterson in the message in, in Romans 6, he says, offer yourselves to sin and it's your last free act. If he's not in charge, we're actually not in charge either. That same passage says that death actually reigns and rules over us in Romans 6. But Hebrews, I think chapter 2, tells us that he has set us free. All those who have lived their life in slavery to the fear of death have been set free from that very fear. We're freed from sin. We are freed from the fear of death. And it is really, really good news. So, verse 15, And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. That sounds like kingship again to me. That we no longer live for ourselves. We're compelled by his love. And we don't live for ourselves, we live for the one who died for us. Who 
would you rather live for than someone who would actually lay their life down for you? He has shown himself good and faithful. He died for us. And then that last little bit kind of feels like it's almost tacked on the end of that and was raised. He'll never die again. Again, I'm focused on Romans 6 right now. He can never die again. He has conquered death. Death doesn't stand a chance against him. We have someone who died for us, but now who lives forever. Uh, Verse 16 and 17 are telling us that we see things so different now, now that he's in charge. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in that way. We see things different. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and see, the new has come. We are different and we see things different. It's similar to the John 3 concept of being born from above or being born again. Everything is different as a result. And here's um, the bit that really focuses in on what we've just done with the gospel and shares. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have been reconciled. So Christ is the one who has brought us back to -to face-to-face, intimate fellowship with himself. But he's also given us the ministry of reconciliation. So this reconciling work that Jesus has done, we partner with him in. There are so many people who don't know what's been done for them. The only thing that's required from us in this scenario is faith. We simply believe. We simply believe in what he has done and receive the good gift. It continues, verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's a really powerful statement. God in Christ reconciles the world to himself and all the junk, all the stuff, all the reasons why he should reject us are not counted against us. It's the beauty and the wonder of repentance. We turn to God. We simply turn to him and embrace him. We reject whatever we were focused on before, but we turn to him. And there's nothing else to do. There may be some things you need to do in a worldly sense to clean up whatever choices you've made, but in an eternal sense, we don't have a long list of things that we now need to do to make up for the junk that we did. He has made up for it. He has paid the price and dealt with it. And now we behold him in this face-to-face relationship. We receive the reconciliation. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. We have the ministry, the service of it, and the message of it. We proclaim it and we actually act accordingly to it. The ministry and the message, both really important. They work hand in hand. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He's done the reconciling already, but he's pleading for us to receive it, pleading for others who haven't yet received it to do so. I want to show a couple of pictures now. 
The first one is of my kids who are here for the first service. Uh, my older four children. Uh, and this is the moment that it dawned on them that they were going to have a little sibling. My brother-in-law was filming it. And that's a still from the video. And we gave them each a gift. And they were increasingly obvious <laughs> gifts. And it took to the final one to be opened, which says, you're the best big sister. Um, the youngest one, who wasn't yet a big sister. Uh, they finally worked it out. Mum's pregnant. We're going to have a baby. There's someone else who gets to join our family and be a part of what we get to experience. And we are going to be richer as a result. I want to show you the next step, not of my family, but of a family uh, that Chad was referencing before. So my sister-in-law, who adopted from the Philippines. This isn't the moment they found out they were going to have an adopted little brother, but the moment they met him. That one down the bottom right, uh, Kaylin with the gap in her teeth, and just that excitement. Here's the reality of a brand new brother. How exciting. We get to be part of the ministry and the message of reconciliation. We get to be a part of that expectancy of going, ah, I think someone may come into the family, but hallelujah, those moments we get to be a part of this and actually seeing someone come into the family that has been reconciled we are talking about an historical event in Jesus becoming king and reconciling everything to himself. But when we say yes and receive it, oh my goodness, everything changes for us. Everything changes for the family and those around us. And actually gets a little bit better. I've undersold it so far. So he intended that we would live in this beautiful relationship of love, face-to-face with him. But we read this next verse that just sounds like too much. It's like, are you sure that's in the Bible? Are you sure that's about us for reals in real life? Let's read it. Verse 21. He made the one, being Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. Wow. Do you know how that can work? Holy. How? How can you be the righteousness of God? I was quoting a little while back from 1 Corinthians 6. There's the last couple of verses in there. You're not your own. Immediately before that, it says that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. The only way that we can be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus is that if it goes beyond a face-to-face relationship. We are in him and he is in us. The one who knew no sin became sin for us great great cost we should sit with that first part and just think about the cost 
but don't let it stop you from going to the second part when you hear the benefit so that we might become the righteousness of God and be holy. (laughs) You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are in him and he is in you. If I was to keep reading into chapter 6, we find out that now is his time of favour. Now, right now, we don't have to wait. We're not missing out because we weren't born when Jesus walked the earth in first century Palestine. We're not missing out because we weren't born in a particular era that sounds exciting in the life of the church. We are full participants because he is in us and we are in him. Anyone who believes is what? A new creation. The old has gone. It's passed away. And see the new has come. I want to give you three ways to respond. It's all exactly the same way, but it's three different times (laughs) you might want to respond to this over the next couple of minutes. Um, I'm borrowing something from Chad. I was like, I'm going to do what I've seen Chad do but at his own church. Um, But the only thing that's different is that I've got three points. Very Chad. They don't all start with the same letter. They don't rhyme. And I I want you to think about which of these three truths I'm about to state, which of those has resonated the most with you this morning. And then I'll get you to stand for that one and I want to pray a blessing over you. So the first one is that Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, then no one else is. You have a gracious and good king and you're saying, yes, I want to follow you. I want this intimacy with you, but I want to follow you more closely than I ever have before. Number one. Number two is that he pursues you. He has always been the pursuer. And it's true for all of history, but it's also true for you individually right here, right now. He pursues you. How good is that song that we sang? Like running, running, running. And he's the pursuer. It's like, we didn't even talk about it. So good. Amazing. The third one is if there is someone that is on your heart at the moment and you are just being reminded that God has not forgotten about them and the desire that you have for them to come into relationship with him is a hint of his desire for that to happen. You're making a declaration, as Chad said before, getting in the sandals of the prodigal. And you are declaring God pursues this person. So that's the third option. So if the first one is true of you and the thing that's resonated with you most this morning is Jesus is King. King Jesus, would you stand to your feet right now? And I want to pray a blessing over you. King Jesus. Or raise your hand if that's, if that's going to work better for you. Father, thank you for Jesus. We declare again that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the king of us. Thank you for those who are standing right now in a declaration of your lordship, your reign and your rule. That your reign and rule is eternal and it's global, it's universal, but it's also true of them right here, right now. You are their king. Hallelujah. We declare your authority that when you speak, we tremble at your word. That we are obedient 
to what you say. That our disobedience of the past, <laughs> that insurance ad, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. <laughs> we just declare that over each of these guys right now. Their past performance is not a reliable indicator of their future performance. But hallelujah that yours is. Your past performance, King Jesus, is a reliable indicator of your future performance. You are always good. You are always faithful. There is no one else that we will bow the knee to. It is King Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you, Lord, for an increasing reality of this for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. And now, if for you, it's the reality of the pursuer, God who pursues you in Christ, I ask you to stand to your feet now. You are pursued. He absolutely delights in you, and he pursues you. There is no hesitation in his pursuit of you. He's just so excited, like that father of the prodigal. He is willing to embarrass himself to demonstrate his pursuit. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, the ultimate pursuer. You pursue us. You love us. It is your joy to receive us. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who have stood right now, and I pray that the revelation that they have already had would increase in this area of you as the pursuer. Thank you for being able to walk in that, a greater freedom not being concerned by things that may have troubled them in the past because of your love. That you are the one that counts. It is your love that changes everything, your pursuit for them that actually gives them their identity. They belong to you. They are received by you. Hallelujah. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your pursuit. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never change. You haven't ever doubted that you delight. Hallelujah. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you for standing up. You can take a seat. And the last group for this morning is those you've got someone clearly in mind. Maybe it's more than one. That's fine. But I invite you to stand to your feet in faith as a declaration that God is pursuing this person that you care about. And you know that he is even more keen to see them a part of his family. So Father, thank you for every single person that is being considered at the moment. Thank you that you love them, that you call them by name. Thank you that what you have is complete restoration and transformation. Thank you that there is healing. Thank you that the sacrifice of Jesus is enough for each and every one of us who are here right now, and it's enough for every single person that we know and every single person across this planet. Thank you that you are enough. I ask, Lord, that we each would get a clearer picture of your love for others, that we would not see each other according to the flesh, according to the perspective of this world, but we would see one another as you do, through your perspective, through your eyes. And we pray that you would bring back the prodigals, bring back those who have tasted and seen, but don't walk with you right now. Bring back those who have never tasted, never seen. Bring back those who walked away with a sense of intentionality, as well as those that walked away with just distraction and other things. 
We ask that you would bring them home, bring home the prodigals, bring in those that have never tasted, never known. Lord, have your way. Would your family expand? Would our hearts expand? Would we have that same kind of delight that we see on those kids' faces in those photos at welcoming someone else in? And may we experience the reality of it. May it happen time and time again. We declare it in faith of seeing those people who are currently on our hearts and on our minds come to know you and come to walk with you all the days of their life and throughout all eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, King Jesus. You are the pursuer. Hallelujah. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.